we didn't really have the purity movement. You know, it was advised that we probably keep sex until after marriage. You know, really, it should just be for one person. Make it special, darling, make it special. I remember most of my sex ed classes were sort of taught to me by either, you know, my own cat or, um, you know, friends across the road. They were talking to me about the menstrual cycle at 11, to which I responded, but why? Why does that happen? Do we not die? How is this? So that was my kind of experience. Come and stay a while amid the British charm that is called my brain. I'm a journalist and pastor in California, but don't hold that against me. I wasn't brainwashed. I chose to leave my atheism on my own accord, consequently after two sips of Kool-Aid. But that's for another time. These opinions are my own most of the time. The humour was learned of a book I found in a hedge, and the dreamer in me, well, she's here to stay. So you're very welcome. You know, I haven't done one of these for an incredibly long time. And I'm trying to work out why. <laughs> You've all sent such lovely messages, such kind comments. It seems to be helping whatever I share, whatever I say, um, for my own vulnerabilities, my own experiences. Um, and I have to say it, it helps immensely to be able to share such experiences and to be able to be so brutally honest. Um, with a crowd of people that appreciate the honesty. Um, many of you know from my Truth Tellers episode how much I value truth. And I have been going through the most transitioning year that I've had probably in the last decade um, before these podcasts were ever initiated, before they were ever begun. You know, a year, 10 years ago, I found myself... Um, yeah, pretty much living with my boyfriend. Um, I was sexually active. I was doing all of these different lifestyle choices that um, would have been frowned upon within the church. Uh, they would have been classed as potentially a woman that didn't love Jesus. And I faced often hostility and responses from the church that I wasn't quite um, sensing all that holy. <laughs> and one of the things I've noticed more than ever is the response to how we as the church are with those who slip up, make mistakes, or indeed are on a different path of their journey than we might be. And when I came into the church, I wasn't all that, um, how do I say it? I was fairly numb to what I had done and how I did things. I didn't carry a huge amount of shame. And today's podcast is all about shame. I wanted to talk about the subject, not on necessarily how to rid it, but how we've been responding and how we've cultivated shame even within the church. That's never been our intention. We've never been as church leaders or pastors or even members of the church wishing to create shame intentionally. But I have to say now in my many, many coaching sessions and my many pastoral sits that I've had in my office over the years, I'm aware more than ever that the, the hindrance of shame in our own lives, the suffocation of shame, has caused a huge amount of fear, of self-questioning, of self-doubt, that has created almost a paralysed generation, not knowing what to do or 
how to act in their worlds. They really revere the gospel. They revere what the Lord has to say. They revere the wisdom of what scripture has brought to them for so many years. They've also revered the rescue, the saving, the redemption stories that so many testimonies have brought along their way. And yet inwardly, there's still this battle between, but can I trust myself? Can I actually do these things and make good choices for myself? Or am I always going to be one of those that made terrible mistakes back in the day and shouldn't really be trusted to be on their own for too long? I know that I've even preached about the cabinet, the importance of accountability, and I absolutely believe that. You'll find as we go along this journey in my podcast, as I get older, there are going to be some things that I agree with and will stick to for the rest of my life. There are other things that have evolved and changed and there's more mysticism now than what there was perhaps even three or four years ago. This particular year, I chose to doff my hat, so to speak, in the pastoral world and hang up the, the pastoral role for a season it wasn't because there was any... It's interesting how many people sort of reached out to me and said, oh, did something happen? Do we need to know? <laughs> I'm intrigued to know why we're leaving the church. Um, but honestly, it was more... It was a, a an organic move, really, something that needed to take place and perhaps should have taken place a couple of years ago. And often, of course, we're waiting for the signs. We're waiting for the signpost to show that we should transition or change, that we should leave the family that we said were family and look for the signs, look to in our prayer life for the answers of what we should do next. And often even that paralyzes us to move forward and make our own choices because we've stopped trusting our own instincts, our own decisions. We've negated too often our own choices in life and believe that it's all about the Lord and only the Lord can choose for us. Well, I'd like to propose a different idea now, mainly because I've been seeing the fruit, so to speak, of those that have been in the church and have been waiting for answers. I would propose that the answers are always within ourselves and the answers have been wide in us since before we were born. But too often we're waiting for the Lord to bring them out of us. Just the same as I've mentioned before, how times we run around the church and the advisors and the elders. We look for the wisdom of the sages, the people that have done life longer than we have. And we look for their answers all the time. The problem is, I don't really see us finding our own answers for ourselves. And when we question whether the Lord is actually silent with us, there have been too many times that we project in anger towards God when I actually think sometimes the silence is coming and I can feel a bunch of atheist friends listening to this. The silence comes not because he's not talking, because he's not there, atheist, but there is silence because God created us with an innate belief in ourself. He wanted us to believe in ourselves, the very craftsmanship, the Christ within us, actually has answers internally that we're supposed to be answering for ourselves and there'll be nudges and guidance along the way from the Lord but he's not a puppet master he's not controlling he does allow us to take choices and in those choices we get to learn our limitations our boundaries what works for us what doesn't work for us what doesn't work for other people where we come most alive and where we thrive the most when we love at our best and one of the things I've noticed in, in, that, in that 
hardcore doctrine of right and wrong. We came from chaos, as I've mentioned in the in the deconstruction episode. We sort of launched ourselves from chaos and we're so thankful that we found structure in the church. And so in that running to the church, we, we found order, we found structure. The bigger the church, the more we had to do a bit of crowd control. And so we had potentially stronger rules and regulations than perhaps your tiny church like my mother has, where there's only 30 people and the youngest there is 75 years of age. I mean, I'm essentially part of the creche when I, whenever I visit. So the reality is, is that we're, we're running to the church, we're wanting the answers because we didn't trust ourselves in our own chaos, which on many levels makes a perfect amount of sense. The problem that comes though, is when we are messing up, when we do make mistakes and we start to turn our need for morality into a case of striving. And what I'm seeing happen more and more is the church without realising it, or even without meaning to, are starting to regulate the validity of someone's brilliance by being um, regulatory on their morality. Let me explain what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Essentially, if you're a really good girl, if you're doing everything right, then you will be promoted, you will be trusted, you will be placed in positions of anointing. If you're anointed and you're doing a good job, then great, that's perfect. But if you're anointed and you start to mess up or you've made some terrific fail, how quickly do you see the ministry and the fall of that person fall overnight? How quickly do you see the entire congregation leave at the very moment that someone actually needed a friend? And I too have been privy, dare I say, to being a part of a crowd where I've distanced myself a little bit because someone made such a hash up with their marriage or made such a dreadful choice in their own lives. But I'm starting to realize that we've actually created our own nightmare. We've become the pit of vipers, preaching the gospel about the agape love of God. But honestly, if any of us did anything out of line or untoward, who really would be our friend at the end of it without a smidge of judgment or without a smidge of hostility? And so we have created, without realising, a vortex of shame. I'm aware, of, even in my pastoral journey, how tough I sometimes was on students because they weren't helping themselves. And instead of being willing to just meet them where they were at, where they wanted to be fed, where they wanted to be sewed into, I was trying to push them beyond a place that they were willing to go. And at times that would cause the students hurt and pain. I would do it in my own lives, in my own personal lives. I would try and push a point of truth, of reason, of um, something that would make them better, that would help them stop failing at themselves. Even as a codependent towards my father, when he was an alcoholic, I was leaving the cans of beer outside of his bedroom so that he knew I knew that he was drinking. I was doing all these subtle manipulations that I would say and justify in my own head that I was actually helping him find his own freedom from not drinking anymore. But the reality is, is that empty bag of beers outside of his bedroom was only creating more shame. What I would suggest in this journey is even though we as the church are actually trying to fight on behalf of another of the person until they're willing to fight for themselves, it's actually created almost this sense of dependency on the church to tell us whether we're doing the right or wrong thing. 
it loses our sense of autonomy. And shame is actually built in us, dare I say it, from as young as 18 months old to the age of three. It's at that point that we are given the autonomy, hopefully, in good parenting to be able to make our choices, to rebel a little bit, to be able to find our own limitations and our own boundaries. But sometimes with the beautiful gift of religion and the toxic side of religion, we remove the right of autonomy from that person, even at the age of as young as 18 months old. I've seen it even in fostered children, a, a journey that I'm about to take place in myself as a single mother. I'm about to take in trauma children who have already been given trauma from somebody else in the environment, in the world that I've never met. I'm about to welcome strangers into my own home knowing that they will be carrying some sense of shame, whether they blame themselves for their own parents' addictions or whether they blame themselves honestly for... Um, choosing wrong parents mentally in their own psychosis before they were even born. What did I do to deserve this? Should I have done something else? They're terrified of having needs all of a sudden. They're shamed to have needs because they were told off for crying at the wrong moment. Or they were battling with a tantrum and wishing to have their voice heard, but they were punished with corporal punishment. And so the shame comes on very quickly, very early on. On top of that, we also include abuse and emotional abuse, the afflictions that other people have placed on other people. And the more I'm getting into learning about shame, the more I'm able to recognise those that have been abused, those that have faced trauma. And it often is, is depicted in an immense strife. <laughs> You'll, you can tell, and this is, this is something I actually wrote out on Instagram many months ago. I wrote a list that people were like, oh, dang, this is too close to home. We like to think that we've redeemed ourselves of our shame. We like to think that we've gone through all the forgiveness and, and really beaten against the, um, the charge that shame can do, do. We know that there is no condemnation in Christ and yet we are actually still in an environment that can at times remind us of what we've done wrong rather than what encourage us in what we're doing right and that allowing us to meet us here we're expecting the quick redemption story not the one that takes a long time we're expecting the porn addict to be over it within an encounter with Jesus and be done by Monday but actually the reality is shame takes a while to heal from and if the Lord hasn't encountered you in that kind of dynamic Damascus Road experience that doesn't mean that you're not healing. That doesn't mean to say that you're not removing shame slowly but surely. It's just very subtle. And the reason why it isn't always removed from us so quickly is because he's wanting to build our character and actually face some of these things that we're wanting to hide away from. Shame is something that we have to face, we have to look at. And the things that I wrote down on Instagram were essentially a list of this is how you know you're carrying shame. And I would say in my encounters and relationships, in my encounters in romance and workplace, I've often noticed some of these things in myself and some of these things in other people. Indicators to say that you are full of shame might be that they get defensive, they self-sabotage every time love comes near. They're continually asking what is right and what is wrong. And they're continually telling others what is right and what is wrong. They, they question um, every choice that you make. They can't ask for help where they need it. They've run to different places hoping for a continual fresh starts. They're almost nomadic at times. Um, they're more prone to depression and sickness. They can't be 
friend people who are different to them. It's a big one. The cancel culture is actually not so much of an indication that um, people are cutthroat. It's more of an indication that people can't tolerate themselves. <laughs> if they're being this cruel to someone that differs in opinion to them, then think about how cruel they are to themselves. They're the same ones that will say that they have dark voices speak to them in the middle of the night, that the, the thoughts get dark when they're on their own. They're the ones that find it really hard to be on their own in their own home. Um, they often find themselves getting very agitated and will often talk against or over other people. Um, they can be addicted to any kind of painkiller. And I don't just mean the prescribed ones. I mean porn, I mean sex, I mean substances galore or being just too busy. Um, they seek affection from people to fix and approve of them. They're the ones that say they can't be in a relationship, but they're also jumping to the next girl or the next guy to fix a, a short-term attention need. They try to rewrite relationships with other people rather than actually looking at the relationship they have with themselves. They're incredibly critical they repeat the same cycles over and over again, whether it's similar relationships or whether it's similar um, sabotaging. I've often noticed, especially in the last few years and especially being in Los Angeles, they're very gung-ho on status and career. They're very big on making sure that they can um, prove something to themselves by acclaiming something from the outside world. But if you look at their intimacy, their ability to do relationships, very few of them actually have real friends because they push those that will charge and challenge them. They push away accountability. I've often noticed as well, if I've had people work for me um, or they've had, I've had any sort of team members, there'll be times where they make a mistake and they're in tears before they've even come to me to tell me that they've made the mistake. In my own compassion and in my, oh my gosh, I don't want to see you crying, sweetheart. They really beat themselves up. They want to pay above and beyond what they had done. The punishment that they're giving to themselves is now no longer fitting the crime. And we have to actually stop for a moment and go, oh, sweetheart, you don't need to do that. We need to go, why are you so tough on yourself when I'm your boss and I'm not half as tough as you are on yourself? It's not a depiction to say that you are an incredible ruin and they're just a huge mistake and shouldn't have ever been born. But that's often the response from someone that is full of shame. And here's the ironic part. I came into the church much less shameful than as I, how I feel now. If I can be really honest, I'm still carrying a lot more shame now than when I entered the church 10 years ago. Um, why is that? Why do I have more now after preaching the gospel, after traveling the world, after doing so much talking to everyone about the agape kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the substance of his kindness and how it wrecked me and ruined me. I can tell you to the hills and back how kind and how graceful and how merciful our Lord is. But when you're dealing with people in the church, there can still be this terrifying creation that is made amongst themselves that essentially creates these moments of self-questioning, self-doubt. We're starting now to strive to be performative, to belong into a culture by fitting in. And there were times where I didn't look like the next pastor to me. I was the crazy wild child. I was the party queen. 
only a year ago I found myself in an altercation with someone that had actually taken advantage and I'm going to leave it there. But what's so interesting to me is that altercation, which I would consider as assault, was seen by another person, a random fake account that messaged me on Instagram and told me the very details of this altercation and blamed me for it, suggesting that I was inviting that kind of behavior in. I was devastated. I was clouded with this big blanket of shame. I spoke to my cabinet and went, how can this be that I see something as assault, but I didn't even realize it was assault until now because I just blame myself for being in a position that could have made him take advantage. And I, for the first time in my life, I'd actually experienced a, a, a moment where I've heard women who've been involved in sexual assault, I've heard women that have experienced these things and they blame themselves. And it's so clear and objective for me to say, oh, sweetheart, that wasn't your fault. You were groomed or you were manipulated. You were placed in a difficult position. But when it's you, when it's your time to face the music, how tough are we on ourselves? Pretty brutal, pretty, pretty cruel. Because we believe somehow that if we're a really good person, we'll avoid all the bad people in the world. And when bad things happen to us, we question what we did wrong. I think in some of the poor, poorer teachings of the church, whether it was the purity movement and having a... Oh gosh, I remember hearing this story where, and I wasn't brought up in the American purity movement. So you've got to understand like where I'm coming from an English Brit. I, I was brought up in the church, yes, I had two Baptist ministers, but we didn't really have the purity movement. You know, it was advised that we probably keep sex until after marriage. You know, really, it should just be for one person. Make it special, darling. Make it special. It's normally what they would say to us. And that's pretty much the chat. That was the sex ed that we had. And I remember most of my sex ed classes were sort of taught to me by either, you know, my own cat or, um, you know, friends across the road. They were talking to me about the menstrual cycle at 11, to which I responded, but why? Why does that happen? Why Why is that happening every month? Do we not die? How is this? So that was my kind of experience growing up. And I, I remember hearing about the American purity movement and even stories only in the last year that I go, oh my word, how was this okay? <laughs> how is this all right? You see, the church, I think, mean to deliver these things or these teachings by means of protecting children, protecting people from helping and educating people to make the right decision, to make good choices for their lives that will protect the heart for its wellspring, I can't even talk, for its wellspring of life. But when I heard about this purity movement in America and, and just how extreme the teachings were, one of which... And some of you guys might relate to this. One of this was where a, and I believe, I'm sure there are variations of this story and variations of this teaching. But I, I heard um, that uh, a youth group would be uh, taught uh, mixed sexes, male and female, all in the same group. They're young and impressionable, way before the age of 25. 
And the teaching goes something like, you see this candy bar, well, as we unwrap the candy bar, the, the candy bar is the essence of the purity of the woman. And you, my love, I want you to share this around the men. I want you to let them take a bite of the candy bar. By the time the candy bar goes around the circle, um, the candy bar is half eaten and a sort of shriveled mesh of wrapping and chocolate. And the tale of the moral of the story is, look how little there is left of the candy bar once everyone takes a piece. And I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, apart from the fact that it's incredibly demoralizing for any female in the room, the guys haven't learned much other than that chocolate bar is actually quite tasty. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the moral of the story is. So there's this kind of... And as a teacher myself, and a long line of generation of teachers in my mother's side of this family, teaching is an incredibly powerful tool. It has to be done with delicacy, and it has to be done with not warning. It has to be done with excitement and a vision. And so I, I, I guess my challenge in this entire podcast is how do we, how do we teach on wisdom and morality without also ostracizing those that have created incredible choices for their time, including myself. I remember feeling so much shame when I was around people that had been so squeaky clean and married at 23, and I would hear them speak from the front as if they'd never done anything wrong or anything out of line. And if there was one thing they did out of line, it was used as part of their sermon and probably the most used sermon they've ever used. But it was just one time, one thing, you know. Most of the time they're living in fear of getting it wrong and we've gone back into a place of striving rather than in, into a, an unconditional place of relationship. I've often seen people, and I'm not encouraging everyone to just blow up their lives now, but I've often seen people come, come into a much more genuine relationship with Jesus, a much more genuine relationship with God, and the understanding of God's character when they've messed up. It's the, it's the prodigal son coming home moment. It's the, oh gosh, I've blown up my life. I tried to do it my way. This wasn't a good idea. I didn't take the wisdom of other people. But the church are still the elder brother and the prodigal son story. And we seem to be unable to throw the celebration with our father for those who are coming home. Now, here's what's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of stopping myself in the middle of this story because the prodigal story, the, the entire story is based on him coming home, on him choosing to come home and being willing to throw, and now we can throw the party for him. But let's not forget that the father was waiting on the horizon before he chose to come home. There was a position there somewhere. There was a posture there that no matter what he was choosing to do, no matter what the prodigal son had chosen in his own right, essentially wished that his father was dead so that he could spend his own inheritance and essentially blew it before he even died on prostitutes and all sorts. When he returns back, it, it seems like a lot of the church is like, okay, I guess, you know, we'll celebrate your redemption story. But we don't seem to be able to be encouraging or be there or be waiting on the horizon like the father of the prodigal son story in the middle of their mess. My point being, we seem to be great 
when people have been incredibly remorseful, incredibly regretful, and are crying in our office saying, I'm so sorry, we'll do something different next time. We seem to be fine with that. But if there is a, a mode of which people are still blowing up their life and still doing stuff that are essentially not just unkind to other people and, and sabotaging other people. You see, what's interesting to me is those that carry the most shame will often play the victim. Those that have created carnage in front of my eyes towards other people will be crying for themselves over how hurt they are over the confrontation. To which I'm thinking, what about all the others that you blew up? What about all the ones that you tread dreadfully? <laughs> We've forgotten about those? We're just playing the victim card still? Okay. We have to actually take ownership of our shame as well. This isn't something that we just long for somebody else to take away from us. This is something we actually have to go after ourselves and go, you know what, I've actually been using that narrative so that I can take away my need to be responsible for autonomy. I've actually been using that narrative so I can keep everyone else at bay and not come into my journey of blowing up my life. It seems that those that are waiting on the horizon for us feel very frightening and very intimidating for intimacy. It seems much more possible to be able to invite invite intimacy to us when we're finally home and broken and just, you know, a, a, a puddle of mess on the floor. That's when we need to be picked up. I just wonder whether we could do a better job of shattering shame. And I'm not so sure how to begin this or how to start it other than when people do feel they can be safe enough to share with you their journey, please give them a smile rather than a fix-it plan. Please give them a hug rather than put them through three deliverances, five sozos, four different meetings with four different managers and, uh, I don't know, a rehab programme. It just adds more and more onto the question of who that person is. And I don't know if there are any students out there that are listening to this going, well, Carrie, you didn't do that with me. And if you are listening to it, gosh, I'm really sorry. Because I'm only learning it myself, you know. I think in, our, in my own line management towards those bosses that I cared for and I wanted to do a good job, I too was striving in my own job and position. I didn't want students to get it wrong or to mess up other people's lives because that would reflect on me just like a parent with an awkward child. We feel embarrassed and shamed about other people's behaviour. But I'm getting much more comfortable with behaviour not working for us. I'm getting much more comfortable with um, people blowing it up. I'm... I'm able to sit and love those in that mess. And I actually feel very thankful and very honored when people can come to me in a space of safety without thinking that I might judge them. In fact, if anything, I'm, I'm challenging them on judging themselves. Shame also manifests itself when we've gone through heartbreak. When we go through heartbreak, and I mean real heartbreak, the ones that you really were in love with, the ones that you could really envision your future with. And I've seen this recently with ones that I really, really love. There is a tendency to be mad at ourselves for not moving on quicker, to be frustrated with ourselves for not having a better position in the grief. Um, and anger not towards the other person but actually towards ourselves that we should know better we should have known better I've had to be much more careful about how I am not when I'm doing great but when I'm struggling when I'm vulnerable when when my heart's been broken out of my own control 
even in the transition of moving from one job to another, it's really easy to start questioning if we could have done something better. Could I have done something better? Could I have done that job better? But thankfully, in the in the honesty of the vulnerability that I've been starting to walking, I found it so much easier to be able to do heartbreak, dare I say it, whether that's the moving on from a job you really loved or the um, the heartbreak itself of losing someone you really loved, whether it's someone or something, I've had to be really kind to myself in the heartbreak and the vulnerability because if I'm not, all it does is create more shame. I'm aware of people that have had so much heartbreak over their life, whether it's abuse, trauma, death, tragedy, breakups, being lied to, um, being deceived, being promised one thing and not having that thing um, given to you. Whatever the trauma and the heartache is, I found it much more important for us to be able to look at ourselves with compassion and asking questions. Shame, people that carry shame will cut out everyone and will push out everyone away because those people are a mirror to them. They're, they're reminding them of like, hey, you actually hurt me. Hey, you haven't done a great job. Hey, you just going silent without explaining why you went silent isn't actually helping me and I need you to look at yourself. But often we don't have enough accountability for people to go, you know, you can come closer, you can come here. Let me put the cloak around you. Let me start throwing the party for you that you're even willing not just to come home, but come home to yourself. There is something that's so remarkably powerful about switching off the radio, turning off the social media and sitting down in the presence of our Lord and actually going, you know what, if you need to cry, you can cry. You don't need to strive for my love and affection anymore because I loved you from the very beginning. I knew all the choices you were going to make and I chose you still, I made you still. And there's something deeply powerful about instead of trying to fix ourselves or move ourselves forward or be in momentum all the, sing all the times that we are trying to belong by fitting in, which of course is the antithesis to belonging. And if you need to learn more about that stuff, Brené Brown does all of that stuff for you. But there is something very powerful in actually just allowing the heart to feel, to feel the heartbreak, to feel the grief, to not beat yourself up because you're not grieving or moving on quicker than you had planned. It's very important that we actually recognize the power of how we are with other people. To cancel someone out suggests that their identity and their, their person should be disregarded entirely. To cut someone out means that you're not willing to look at yourself. To refuse any kind of connection with someone that has fallen or any kind of connection with diversity that listen and do things differently to what you might do suggests that you don't trust yourself. I can sit around a conglomerate of very many different people, whether they're full of potty mouth or whether they're incredibly religious and full of legalism. I can normally be around in fact, I find it harder to be around the religious lot than I do <laughs> feel like our Lord Jesus Christ. But I do find it very important that um, those that aren't carrying shame anymore will actually find themselves in a place that they can actually take on criticism a lot easier, a lot better. They can actually hear constructive criticism and respond well. Even if it's not constructive, they respond with a nobility that's quite profound and quite breathtaking. Um, they're able to take on wisdom. 
in a very vulnerable moment. Those that are shameless uh, have no problem with needing to fit in. They are willing to just own who they are and tell pretty directly and pretty straight where they're at, who they feel things towards and and they're direct and honest about who they are and what they represent. They don't try and berate someone else with their own opinion. They're willing to listen to someone else's opinion and listen and allow the mystery of both being allowed to be around the table. They're the ones that are able to sit in the presence of their enemy and feel content. My concern is if we're starting to create more and more church culture around what we do culture, well, then we're in a lot of pain and we're now starting to face a lot of extremism. This is why you're feeling so many societies and communities polarised. It's not because we're necessarily a different of opinion. We've had the world being in a different opinion for a very long time. The problem is, is that our agreement with each other confirms an identity with each other. And because we never looked at our own shame of what we carry internally, we then just projected everything back. So what does it look like if you've had shame and you want to overcome it? Great question. And I don't know the answer. Um, other than uh, start to change the narrative of how you speak about other people and towards yourself. Uh, the next time you feel vulnerable, the next time you feel exposed, see how you are in regards to how you speak to yourself and go back towards some of the language, some of the upbringing that you had when you were children um, and look at any potential narrative that made you question yourself, made you doubt yourself, your competency. I know looking at even Ericsson's um, psychological developments and uh, if you've ever looked at that graph, it's really quite fascinating. You can even pinpoint the years in which you lost the ability to develop on something. Um, for me, competency was a big one. I was always questioning myself, always apologizing to everyone. Um, and I didn't realize that until I even moved to America where they're much more bravado and much more hey, hey, hey. And what I've recognized is that with our false humility in England and the hardcore arrogance, dare I say it, in America, somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic is the happy balance. But um, we actually have, to, we're really only confident when we can honestly remove the shame. If people are going, well, how do I, how do I get more confident? How do I love myself better? Well, make it a season of removing shame no longer apologizing for being in the room, no longer apologizing for asking someone out on a date, no longer questioning your every move or no longer feeling like you can't have a need, no longer feeling bad for having a boundary towards someone. If they don't like it, that's okay. But we need to remove shame from all of our lives. And as leaders and as pastors in the church, I think we need to get much better. And not just when people do a great job but when they do a terrible job we need to reach out and listen to the story of the person that was preaching to us for a very long time about the rights and wrongs of morality and then found themselves in a deep despair of falling themselves i have to say i think it was the projection and the judgment and the hardcore arguments going on about theology and the religious world that made me go you know what this isn't fun anymore i want to go out into the big wide world and see the Lord show up in the secular, because I think there's going to be more room for him to show up than there is in the church right now. Because this arguing, this doctrine shaming, this maddening against other people's political opinions, etc., etc., is not helping us remove shame. We're creating more.
And I felt that there are times where the trolls, the people that have known me, you know, for decades um, and have perhaps known my crazy ways back in the day, for me, I found it um, very heartening when I was surrounded by my friends that have known me for 30 years. And it's neither here nor there whether I'm leading a, a holier life, in quotes, than whether I was blowing it up as a wild party girl back in my 20s. They haven't ever loved me based on my behaviour. They've loved me because they enjoyed me. And... Um, I've been forever grateful for those people. They've often been more Christ-like than perhaps a lot of people I've met in the church because they just sought to enjoy each other rather than pull each other down. And that's been the warp for me coming back to England. When you turn off the noise of people arguing about Jesus himself, which I'm sure he's, he's the last person that would like to be argued over. <laughs> When you turn off the noise of that, when you see the fruit of people in the church, I want to see more courage. I want to see people take more risks. I want to see them be able to embrace and envelop all walks of society and be known for not being the judgmental ones. This is why the church has been essentially sidelined in the last 10 years out of many public situations, public dominions, because the religious world are no longer trustworthy. They've been judging for too long. They've been having an agenda for too long that wasn't actually based on love, but honestly fear, the fear of people messing up, the fear of doing it wrong. We create these purity movement teachings not based on, dare I say, the teaching is wrong in the, in the way that we're, we're educating people because we're left with self-question. You know when the teaching is right because they're leaving with a self-belief that will trust themselves and in the Lord and therefore take more risk, take more courage and do things out of wisdom and self-worth, not because no one will like me if I don't do this, or if I do do this, no one will like me. We can't be teaching out of a fear state. We have to be teaching out of an encouragement, out of a vision for the brilliance and the fullness of people's lives. We have to be teaching people to trust themselves. We have to be teaching about the acceptance of our Lord Jesus Christ in any choice, in any walk and path, because it's exactly the acceptance of him in our worser choice that actually changes the game, it actually changes our choices. And we're no longer looking for the validity and the validation of other people. We're no looking for affirmation from the fear of man. We're no looking to try and fit into church. So we're finally accepted and we can finally find our identity in Christ because the church accepted us. What if the church doesn't? <laughs> what if they don't do a good job because they're human? What if they're actually too comfortable as Christians and they're not doing anything for anyone whatsoever? I'd like to propose that we perhaps take a season in one of the most unpredictable seasons and we really start asking our questions. Did I do a good job with those who came to me with vulnerability, with exposure, to themselves or other people? Did I do a good job in loving them? 
Did I do a good job in asking more questions than fix-it plans and solutions? Or do I need to go and say sorry? <laughs> I guess this is my sorry for any student that I pushed too hard, that I, in my utter love and belief for them, made them feel more shameful leaving my office than arriving in it. And I'd like to think, from the conversations I've had with students, that they, they felt the opposite, they felt very loved regardless of what they brought to me. But I think there were times where I was trying to push the boat too much and it felt more condemning for them rather than me trying to push a point. And that's not fun and for that I'm so sorry. Additionally, I think what's really important for me in that acknowledgement is for me to look at how I was brought up. There are times where I, I accidentally dropped something and I was accused of doing it on purpose. Um, in the affliction of other people's choices and behaviours, I took them on as myself thinking I could change it if I did something different. And so I've had to heal that rather than project it onto other people. I've had to go into myself and look at how I can be kinder in the narrative when no one else is around. And I have to say it's made me a little bit more daring. It's made me be able to come out from under the wings of a wonderful church that I was a pastor of. Um, and they have faced so much hardcore um, judgment and battling. And um, I've been very grateful for the fact that whenever we have gone wrong, we've still been able to uh, take feedback. Uh, we've been able to change whatever we could change. And I'd be very grateful for the, for, the, for the people within that church that have actually done that. But I don't think it's helped when I've seen Additionally, other church leaders DM people on Instagram questioning what they're wearing or how uh, inappropriate that piece of swimwear was. I've not appreciated hearing the heartbreak of members of the church where they've been so shamed or humiliated. I myself had to sign papers as a foster parent saying I wouldn't humiliate or shame or use corporal punishment on children. And I thought, well, of course I'm not going to do that. But I think in our own fragility and our own lack of looking at ourselves instead we're just striving to earn the right and the performance and the obedience with the lord um our strife was actually originally reverence it was a reverence for the holiness of the lord and we wanted to do right by him we still want to do right by him not because it'll earn us our, our, our little place in heaven that's by the by that it takes very little to get into heaven <laughs> It's a very graceful place. But what I'm saying, and of course, of course, that was used as, a, as another teaching tactic of hell and damnation um, and how to avoid it. Another teaching mechanism that, again, would create an awful lot of shame and self-questioning into the church members, uh, whoever was hearing such incredible theology. Um, I don't know. I don't know where we begin this, but we need to start. And it needs to start with ourselves. It needs to start with us as church leaders, finding better ways to teach. It needs us to talk more about the sanctified mercy of our Lord. And I remember even recently someone coming to us saying, you know, you don't want to give unsanctified mercy of the Lord to things that the Lord does not approve of. And I thought, I don't know whether I agree with that because every, everything I read of him, he was always there when everyone else had left, when everyone else had chosen to be hostile and to push 
those people away. And I just long for a gospel that's exampled in a way that is still breathtaking, not full of shame, not full of a, a working order that lets you graduate or not graduate from a ministry school. I think I actually want to see those that feel the most lost feel the most found by us. And even if we've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, the ones that still carry shame are the ones that are still locked in the prison of themselves, unable to really connect with anyone. You know, there was a gentleman who was reputed um, to be profound in the 60s of the Jesus movement and the healing movement. And um, obviously I'm not going to name names, but he sabotages relationships. Now he's much older uh, on a daily basis very entitled, in a lot of pain, using a lot of um, numbing substances, should we say, to help him get away from himself. It, it's been painful to watch. And the hardest part was the pride that was separating him between his shame, his sabotage and people. Where do we start with shame? We remove our pride. And we start to recognize that the best way for us to grow is to be humble, is to not believe that we are owed anything other than a kind voice to ourselves. So there you go. There you have it. Those are my thoughts on shame. I hope it helps a little. And uh, I'm now in England for five months. I am still coaching for those who wish to Reach out and do a coaching session. It's team.carryloyd at gmail.com. And if you want or have any thoughts on this, feel free to DM me at Carrie Gracie on Instagram. And I've been so grateful for those who have shared this podcast. I've been so grateful for those over the years that have just so enjoyed this. And if you're listening to me for the first time, hello and welcome, darling. Lovely to have you. Um, I hope to be back much more frequently now I'm in England. Now one has placed the pastor hat on the side for a season and one is, uh, just to be really clear, sorry, I haven't fallen from grace or anything like that. I'm purely taking off the pastor hat because I like to have a bit of fun. And, um, and you know, my sweet church went, yes, that's a good idea. And I just felt like it was time for me to do a different venture. I was never called to full-time ministry for the rest of my life. I was called to be in it for a season and I was called to be in it to actually challenge the church not to bring in more numbers. And I feel like I can still do that, especially when I'm out in the secular world and doing different things. So what am I up to? I don't know. But I'm just enjoying the peace and quiet. I'm enjoying time with my mother, time with my family. I'm writing. We have a fourth book coming out soon. Um, and... I'm looking forward to telling you all about that. So I love you all so much. Thanks so much for the messages. Uh, stay tuned. Keep me updated with all of your thoughts and feedback. And if there's anything that I haven't spoken about yet on this podcast that you'd love me to talk about, I'm very happy to take requests. All right, darling. Thank you. Speak to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Carry On podcast. I've so loved your messages. If you're new to this, um, then I'm on Instagram at Carrie Gracie. 
and you're welcome to DM me there. I do read my own messages. We do have a little team that helped me out with it as well. And we have a Facebook page that is called Carrie Lloyd, funnily enough. So uh, if there's anything you want me to talk about, if there's anything you wish to get in touch with us about, uh, then you can also go on to www.carrielloyd.live. That's my um, main website where you can contact us through there. Um, always a pleasure, never a chore, darling. <laughs>